ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, and as you're seated, turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 127. Psalm 127. Beginning of September, we'll start a series through the book of Genesis. Um, just hitting out a couple things, as the Lord has put on my heart and mind, probably in our calendar or church calendar year, and also some things we have going on, and just things I've read and been meditating on. Look forward to Pastor Doug preaching next week, and Pastor Sam the week after that. I believe that's how it goes. So, um, but anyways, looking forward to hearing them over the next couple weeks. So, Psalm 127, and we'll read the whole, the whole chapter here. Psalm 127, starting verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word, man is of it. Would you pray together with me? Heavenly Father, uh, if anything we ask in this life is that you would build our lives, that you would build our church, Father, that you would build our nation that we are a part of. Father, we ask uh, these things because as we've read, Father, we know that unless you build it, those who build labor in vain. Father, these are all things that we look to you to do, that, Father, you would be glorified, honored, that you'd raise up people who seek you earnestly, you'd raise up people who are full of, of justice and grace and mercy, Father, those who've been impacted with the gospel. And Father, let it begin with us first, as those who have responded to Christ, who've, you've changed our hearts, you've given us a new heart, you've helped us see the gospel. Father, help us to see it and its application for us. Help us start with us who receive your word. Father, as you've spoken to us, and we know that this is your word for us, lead and guide us in it. Help us turn away from sin and turn to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past few weeks, I've been listening to this interesting program. It's, it's called a podcast. It's um, a program that's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. And it's a story of one of the fastest growing churches through the 1990s into the year 2000. It was located in a really unchurched area in Seattle, Washington. And, and it tells the, the story how a church managed to gain thousands and thousands of, of, of people for worship over a short period of time, only to see it dissolve really overnight uh, because of abusive leadership patterns. Um, you know, in the history of the church, you know, it seems this story, which is being told, and I'm learning to it, interested in it, but it's amazing how fast it was, up and then down, just a flash. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's something that didn't last. You know, some people, as they go through this, um, really an autopsy of this church, um, you know, you'd see, and there were probably problems from the start, you know, from abusive leadership styles, um, attraction to celebrity, those things were there, but yet... Even though those things were there from the very beginning, they were allowed to proceed unchecked. And why? Well, often you see numerical success, 
And because when numerical success or financial success takes place, you know, it begins to, people set aside things of moral questions, leadership questions, and they get pushed in the background. And as a result, you see something which rises, and as the problems are exposed, it crashes. You know, it brings to us that question that we have to deal with constantly, that if, that if something is successful, does that make it right or true or good? And obviously, it doesn't. There are similar stories we can think of through history. We can think of, uh, for example, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11, we read the story of the Tower of Babel. And we consider that, you know, the people of the earth at that time, you know, endeavored to create and, and to build this, this enormous structure. structure. It was a technological marvel at the time. But they thought that as they did it, it would make them higher than God and not need God. And because of that faulty foundation spark, it was doomed from the beginning. Some should have seen that despite the apparent success in building it the first, that it wouldn't work. We just need to go back 100 years ago to read the story of the Soviet Union. And in the West, there was fear of communist takeover and spread throughout the world. They were reminded in 1989, the Berlin Wall falling, the Soviet Union collapsing in uh, December 26, 1991. What seemed so great, what seemed so mighty, what seemed so spectacular, what seemed so fearful that it, was, it fell relatively quickly. So we see things that appear successful, and even though they appear successful, we see that they can suddenly fall. And as they do, you know, we look back at it, we look at the history, and we see the cracks that were there, the cracks that led to failure. People probably saw those cracks all along, but they just chose to ignore them, being blinded by success. Then we're reminded of the scripture that we're looking at here today. Psalm 27.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. It's not just churches, building projects, or nations that we're talking about here. It's our lives as well. And they can fail because the foundation is weak. We can build up great careers. We can work for financial freedom and independence. We can start and to grow a family. We can invest in a church. We can build a great business. We can create whatever kind of comfortable or meaningful life that we want to choose. And then we can still end up with nothing. As he says, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain. Vanity. Word translated becomes air or breath. Something that as soon as it goes out, it, it just disappears. Because it's meaningless. So how do we prevent this? If we're going to do things that matter, things that work in the long run, we have to keep eternity in mind. If we're going to build things that last, especially in light of eternity, we need to ask if our agenda and our plans are lined up with God's agenda, with God's plans. And we certainly like to, to baptize our own agendas. We like to think that our own ideas are divine, that God showed us these things. You know, but we always have to ask ourselves, is that really the case? Are our goals really from the Lord? Is the line up with Scripture? The passage in our meditation today gives us a chance to, to think about questions about that. So we want to look at three things from Psalm 127, three things just from this passage. So just kind of go verse by verse through it. So for that paper Bible is one of the reasons is you can write numbers or notes on the side. Like I have three things in verses one and two. Maybe you'll note that. Sometimes it's helpful just to see it, you know, in your hands before you. But we want to look at three things. And the first thing is what matters to God. Uh, the first is faith. The first is faith. As we look at verses one and two, we see three different vain things that are being spoken about. 
Three different things that are vanity uh, for us unless something else is happening and taking place. The first thing we see in verse 1 is to build without God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So what the writer has in mind here is that whatever we work on needs to be done hand in hand in the Lord. Certainly he's working. People work. The question is, is the Lord working inside of it? Any of our successes, any of our accomplishments, uh, those things come because God is involved in blessing that work that we are doing. Now, this psalm, you'll see if you look above verse 1, it will say it's a song of ascents of Solomon. It's interesting to see that it's written by Solomon. And you might know the story of Solomon. You'll remember that he was the third king of Israel. And he inherited a great nation from his father David. And during his time, he actually even made it greater in many ways. But he also indulged himself. He gave himself to all kinds of pleasures. He endeavored after great building projects, business endeavors. He expanded the, the kingdom of Israel. But his great fault through all this is that he forgot God. He forgot God during his lifetime. He married many, uh, the Bible says, many foreign women, and he began to worship other gods. We see him living for himself and giving himself to these immoral pleasures. And what he discovered through the course of his life was that without the Lord as the foundation of his life, his life and his accomplishments, they were vain. There's a whole book of the Bible about this, right? The book of Ecclesiastes. You can look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and you see how it starts. Ecclesiastes 1, 2 and 3, where we read him reflecting on his life and what had happened. He says, Solomon says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. That's Solomon. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What, is a, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? See, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is lessons that he's learned, lessons about um, indulging in building projects and, and the enjoyment of wealth, the expansion of the kingdom, the, the enjoyment of women inside of his life. And in the end, the lesson he learns is, you know, as I've drifted away from God, this has not been part of building whatever I've been involved with, I see the vanity of it all. Now, he comes to the end to a conclusion. This conclusion, the most successful people ever to live, but a recalibration that he needed at the end is in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 through 14, which says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I mean, he learned the end of his life without God. They, these things were vain, empty, and meaningless. And he wrote these things down for us to consider before we, we get there. And Psalm 27 is, in a song form, really captures this. And so our calling, then, is to, to see what God is doing and to, to join him in that, to, to line up our actions with God's purposes. Ask if the things that we're doing are consistent with Scripture. Are they ethical? Are we trying to build up our own reputation, our own success, our own money, our own fame? Or are we making about God's glory, are we making about his fame? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, he said, For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a great reminder for us that, that, that we never make something out of ourselves by trying to make something out of ourselves. In fact, in Jesus' economy, when we lose our lives and let God shape us, then we become really what God intends. That's the first main idea is building without God. The second thing we see also in verse 1 is that guarding our lives without God is vain. 
It says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You can kind of picture this one in your mind, I think. You know, here you have a watchman up at the wall. He's, it's nighttime. He's there all night to make sure that his uh, marauding army or, or somebody comes to attack the city, that he is there to sound the alarm. He's separated from his family. You know, it comes to the consequence of a soldier's life. But as he looks out there, of what's happening out there, he's totally oblivious to the turmoil that's happening behind him in the city. Maybe the greatest threat in that city is what comes from within. It's that, that conflict that's the weakness. He might be watching the horizon out there, but he's unaware of what's happening behind his back, inside of his own home. In other words, no matter how we might try to protect our lives, if God is not part of that protection, we remain at great risk. God is sovereign over all history. Nothing happens by accident. But how many people thought they were strong only to suffer defeat? We just finished the Olympics recently, and you know, I know there were a number of teams that were expecting to do well, only to be surprised by that, that difficult loss in the early rounds. Maybe they were watching their opponents, but you know, there's eternal strife or distraction causing failure where uh, they needed to focus. At one time, the Roman Empire, it was you know, the mightiest empire in the entire world. And yet in A.D. 390, Rome was sacked by the Gauls. Twenty years later, in A.D. 410, they were sacked by the Visigoths, you know, an invading army from Asia. Nobody would have thought that mighty Rome would fall, that mighty Rome could be sacked, but its internal weakness left it vulnerable. Many marriages, they began without any sort of connection to the Lord. Without that, the, the forgiveness, as bitterness grows and demandingness shows itself, they struggle. I mean, sure, while there was a time of dating, uh, there was great romance, there was great enthusiasm, excitement, they were having so much fun together, and it, it felt so perfect at the time. But then they're surprised by conflict, they're surprised by adultery, they're surprised by divorce papers, they, they realize that the marriage requires self-sacrifice, not selfishness. No matter what they do to protect it without the Lord, they miss the greatest protect, protection. How do they deal with conflict? That's where the message of the gospel is so central to that. Without it, relationships are, are, are hard. Or businesses think they can do well. They skim the books. They can cut corners involved in ethical, unethical behavior, taking unnecessary risks maybe. You know, and they see prosperity for a time, only to realize that there's a time when the empire comes crumbling down around them. The seeds of ruin are sown when God is abandoned or ignored. And it just takes time to see the consequences playing themselves out. And, and, and God's call to us is this. He says, make me the foundation for your life. Make my word the foundation for your decision-making, for your ethical principles. Make your relationship with me guide your decisions. Then you're going to find a foundation that lasts. Or as he says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Well, the third vain thing that we see in verse 2 is hard work. It's hard work done without the Lord. Psalm 127 verse 2 says, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. You know, hard work. You know, hard work is a vain thing. You know, I mean, isn't that what my parents told me? You know, said work hard. Isn't that what we teach our kids? Well, you need to work hard. That, you know, hard work, you know, often is going to differentiate you from other people. 
Well, here's the thing, that some people want to replace devotion to God and obedience to God with hard work. They think the devotion to God doesn't matter. They think that matters most is the things that they do, uh, that their creativity Sometimes thinking if they work hard enough that they'll be able to avoid God. They might even ask, what does it gain a person to serve God? You know, I got here by the sweat of my brow. I don't, don't get me wrong, hard work is, is critical and, and the Bible commands and commends it, but we need to keep perspective in that hard work. That when it's done without the Lord, it's, it's vain. It's, it's still empty. I mean, how many people have worked diligently for years only to throw it away with a bad decision? How many people work hard in life they have their family break apart when they die. How many people work hard only to find in the final judgment that what they did, they did in rebellion against God? I mean, we don't want any of those or a whole host of other things. Hard work even without the Lord is vain. But let's not forget the grace that's here also. Verse 2 ends with a, with, a, with, a st- with a statement of grace there in verse 2. Something we always need to remember. So that the Lord provides even in, in, in sleep. He says he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, why, why can God's beloved sleep? They can sleep because they know they can trust God in his provision. They're not trying to build their own kingdom. They're not trying to find their identity in their work. They're not living in rebellion against God with a bad conscience. It's amazing as we sleep, what does God do? He continues to build. He continues to guard. He continues to work even when, when we don't. I mean, there is a wonderful grace that is a part of all creation. He does things that we don't earn or deserve. It is part of his common grace and even a special grace to us. And our call then is, as Christians is to be faithful. Our call is to trust in God and, and to work hard. And, but we're keeping God at the center. The good news is that even when we messed up, we can put God back at the center. We can turn to Christ in repentance and faith. As we endeavor to keep God at the center, we learn how he gives rest to his beloved. It doesn't come through worldly success. It's not necessary to rest. What matters most is if we're right with God, if we're cleansed in him, in relationship with him, trusting him by faith. So as we move uh, to verses 3 through 5, what the writer does is then he does give an example of this. Some commentators wonder, like, how does the first part connect with the second part? Well, I think the second part is largely an example. It shows us something that matters to God, and it's family, the place of family. It's really a chief example. You can look at verse 3, how it exemplifies it. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And don't, don't forget, at this time, Israel was a regional superpower. I mean, they were a strong nation while uh, Solomon was their king, and um, it's really easy in times of comfort to uh, begin to trust in worldly success. Uh, a nation can trust an army, can trust financial success, trusting financial wealth. Israel was even many times trusting the idols of the land in order thinking that, that these things maybe were bringing them the success. They were forgetting God in that. But here we see chief among the characteristics of a, of a strong people is a willingness to get married and to begin families. You can tell a lot about a people, a lot about a group of people with their approach and, 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 and their approach to God and their approach to time. By the way, they view marriage and children. In fact, some of the lowest points inside of Israel's history were times that they would offer their children as, as sacrifices to false gods. It showed their, their spiritual weakness. It showed their, their ethical weakness, their national weakness. We can see the same diminishment of children inside of our own world. 
Instead of viewing children as something that's good, like, like these passages here speak about, the world tells parents that, or tells people that children are a problem and that needs to be minimized. An aversion to family continues to grow and it, it shows up in various ways, whether it's in purposeful childlessness, abortion, or as we see in other nations, the abandonment of children to the streets. And, you know, yes, I mean, it's, it's true throughout the world that many think that children are a bigger problem than they are a blessing. It was interesting. Just yesterday, there were, there were two articles that came out, you know, speaking about why so many people are choosing to go childless. And it was interesting, just some of the, the, the perspective that's there um, that, that was written about in these articles. Um, one of them spoke about since 2007, the nation's, nation's birth rate has been declining about 2% each year on average. Um, that Despite early speculation about a pandemic baby boom, the coronavirus crisis accelerated the decline even further with births falling 4% last year. And they talk about a few couples, and uh, one of the couple realized that without children, it said that they can, they can work towards retiring early, a goal that would be otherwise unattainable in a city as expensive as theirs. In their day-to-day life, they have plenty of time for themselves. The second person says, talking about that, that person, it, as it turns out, her friends often didn't, didn't have time for themselves. As kids, they said, you know, their kids came first. But she realized that sacrificing her own needs to fulfill her duty as a parent would be especially taxing for her. One person said, I definitely probably feel I wouldn't be as far in my career as I am now, and I wouldn't be able just to live my normal life and pursue my hobbies and passions. I wouldn't be living my fullest life. You know, I, and, and I know that there, there are struggles and issues around having children, you know, and, and um, you know, certainly we have a culture which can make it harder to have children. I and mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, I know every person has a story and their challenges. And, and these just aren't symptoms of women. These are symptoms of men and women, you know, who have approaches to their life and what's my life about and, you know, am I called to live for myself or for others? But there's something that is, you know, deeply revealed when uh, children are a hindrance to our lives rather than the blessing that God designed. And, and I think to us as a culture, it reveals the deep depression and the purposelessness, the short-sightedness. When our lives are, li- our lives are more and more focused on the here and now and ourselves. I mean, there's an examination of attitudes when it comes to the question of children. I mean, certainly it isn't the attitude of the Scriptures the Bible showed that, that God has abundantly provided for his creation, that he's given us a good world with many gifts to enjoy and sufficient resources to provide uh, for the people of the planet. Um, he speaks about children for his glory and the good of the world, the good of neighbors, the good of the future of the coming generations. And while sin has marred the earth, you know, Jesus Christ came to redeem his people. And so where people have great hope, it, it reflects in the way they, they speak about children. They realize even that the children have a, a powerful message against evil. We can look at Psalm 8-2 as one example. Psalm 8-2, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you, God, have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. You know, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. We see the message of the Scripture speaking to the blessing of children. We've said it before, we'll say it again, that, you know, as we hear, you know, that noise of, of, of babies or toddlers as part of our worship service, uh, you, know, it's, you know, sometimes a time to celebrate, to give thanks. 
You know, it might be distracting, you know, as that parent, you know, pulls it out or addresses the situation in hand, but, you know, it might be distracting, but, you know, what would be the alternative? Never to hear children? You know, it'd be sad. We can say, instead, I'm glad to have babies in the church. You know, it'd be worse without them. You can go around a lot of churches and see no babies inside of their churches. Give thanks. But there's another way that the world misses the value of children. It's the way that parents over-cater to children. I mean, the world forgets that uh, the purpose of children by idolizing child happiness rather than focusing on child purposefulness. You can see child purposefulness described in in verse 4. Verse 4 says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Described as arrows in the hands of a warrior. You know, arrows, if you think about it, they're, they're meant to be carried into battle. They're, they're meant to be aimed. They're meant to be shot at a target. And in this way, the Lord is the warrior who does this work, and he, he sends these covenant children out in the world. Verse 5 goes on to say there's no shame, and these many children walk with Christ. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He should not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, too often, we're inclined to see children as the center of our universe, and while children certainly uh, come, uh, you know, come with them, their, their need of self-sacrifice, deferring our own desires for their needs, you know, we always do it with God's goals in mind. For the child to have a mind for God's purposes for himself, for herself. We don't want our children to think the world revolves around them. We don't want them to think the world revolves around us either. I mean, the world does not revolve around our family schedule. You know, and that's an important thing. To demonstrate, all the world revolves around God and his purposes. The hard job of parenting is to prepare our children to send them off. Our, our job as parents is to help children learn who God has created them to be, who they are in light of God's work in their life, and we want them to see they are created in the image of God, what it means to take dominion of the earth, that they have been loved with God, and that they have been redeemed by his grace. And that's their hope over the redemption that comes in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You know, baptism is just such a powerful picture of this, an important picture. God's declaration of each one that's baptized that they've been redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That, that though they are sinners, that God has loved them. He sent his son in the world to give life and to receive that life by faith. It's such a mark of love and belonging that it's something as we look at our children, we should talk about more. We should, feel the, we, we should help them to feel the consolation that God has marked them. In baptism, and we can feel it ourselves. God has loved me. He's loved me so much that he's given me this sign to show his love. It's a constant reminder to our children that they don't need to, to find love in all the places that the world says that they need to find love. It's a reminder to rest in, in the love of God for them. If the children want to know and experience love in the world, the best thing is to, is to seek it in God and then to give love towards others. Part of preparing children to go out in the world is to see the importance of the Lord's Day as a day of worship and the importance of building a connection with the local church. You know what? The church is a family. You know, this baptized family together, you know, connected to each other through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ. The church becomes a support. It becomes a network. It reminds us that our strength is found in the community of people building his kingdom together. It's a place where we reinforce one another in our call to give and our call to be different than the world. You know, how is it that, that any of us will stand against the powers and influences of the world, the ones that want to pull us into sin, the ones that pull us into vanity, the ones that pull us away from Jesus? You know, how is it we stand alone? You know, we can't stand alone. 
You know, we need the church. Our children need the church. I know a lot of, uh, we have students that are here. You're going, you're going away to college here uh, maybe this week. Probably have students who've already gone back to college this week. You know, and the challenge goes to you. Would you see, you know, this first week you go back to school, your need of the Lord, your need of the Lord's day? Or, you know, or would that college education be done, you know, without this foundation of God building a house, protecting and working? You know, that first week, my encouragement, and I said this in the graduation uh, service we had a few weeks ago, is that first week, be in church. You know, that habit that you set that first week is a pattern that you set for the future, and it, it, it you know, it's, it's going to demonstrate the importance that this is for you. And for us, as we start up our ministries in the fall, you know, we realize that this is not just activities that we do, that these are parts of formation, patterns for living, practices for us. So whether it's our worship service, our Sunday school classes, our boys' brigade, our pioneer girls, our, our children's music and drama program, um, these are ways that children, they form community, they think about worship, they think about their connections with other people. And as we do all these things, we remember what our target is, to send out into the world as arrows. And we pray that they would hit something. We pray that they would make an impact. I think, you know, one of the, one of the things as parents that's, you know, a little nerve-wracking is, you know, they just get shot out in the world. Are they going to land? Are they going to hit? We have to pray for them in that. Pray as, as, as they're sent out in the world. What we want to do is to see them as disciples of Christ, walking with God and building his kingdom. You know, and that's going to lead in the way that we even think about them and think about the threats to them. You know, there, there certainly are threats of immorality around the world, but, you know, what if it is at times the greatest threat to our, our children's understanding of Christ, the idolatry within any of us? How many of kids who walk away the faith don't reject Christianity, but really just reject the false gospel of parental idolatry? You know, maybe they never heard the gospel of Jesus. Maybe they never heard what the Christian faith is. Maybe they only heard the religious demands of their parents. What if it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but our own expectations of children to grow up in our own image, in the image of the world, in the image of our own dreams or our successes, rather than seeing them grow up under the guidance of a loving, wise, good, and a sovereign God who offers redemption in Jesus Christ. So our calling as, as parents is to see, to help them find out how God has designed them. The purpose is that he has for them, particularly. And if we find we, that we've pushed our own agenda, we have to apologize to them, and, and we praise God as we see God's work inside of their lives. There's a book that I have out there on the book table, which I'd encourage some families to pick up. It's, it's called Church is Not Boring. Any parents ever had their kids say church is boring? Any parents ever heard, ever, any parents ever said church is boring themselves? Um, you know, it's an excellent little book to read together with your children because it addresses a whole family approach to thinking about church. You know, it gives things for parents and children to talk about together. It's because we have the chance to influence children in daily life, in our drive times, at dinner tables, even the decorations at our home. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, you know, speaks about um, teaching diligently to the children, whether we sit at the table in the house, whether we're walking by the way, whether we're lying down, when we rise. You know, these are conversational times to talk about what the Lord has done. I'm a parent of teenage children, and I realize that once driving them around ends, once that drive time 
ends is that you lose a lot of conversational time. You know, so especially as they're little. You know, use those times of good spiritual conversations about what God is doing in your life and what God is doing in the world. And even as parents, you know, our example matters. You know, we need to show that we need the Lord too. We need forgiveness of our sins. We need to apologize. We need ongoing forgiveness. We have the same spiritual needs as our children. We're help them to see that they are called to mission as well. We're reminding them that they are arrows to be held in God's hand to be used for his purposes. You know, so we see this, you know, this, this thing that's built to last, you know, and one application of something that the Lord is building is, is the family. But the vision of Psalm 127 goes beyond the immediate family, and it goes to a vision of the entire church of Jesus Christ. This is where, you know, some of that last part applies specifically to parents, but this is where we all need to see our calling in place. Because the third point we want to look at today is what matters to God is disciple-making. Disciple-making. We see this especially in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Because as important as biological children are, it's even better and more important that we see disciples and raised up and sent out in the world. We want to see disciples raised up. Remember what Jesus said here in Matthew 28? He says, um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yeah, how do churches grow in the New Testament? How do they grow in the Old Testament? How does, it, how does the people of God grow in the Old Testament? It's usually by children, right? Covenant children who grow up. How do we see it grow in the New Testament? It's by pe- people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we see in the New Testament, it's not uh, by cre- procreation so much as it is um, God's new creation. You know, God's new creation of making people new in Christ through the work of evangelism. I can't think of any examples in the New Testament where people uh, say to grow the church by having children. I mean, I think it's assumed that people are going to have children. I think it's assumed that part of the greater call is that we have children, is that we help them uh, know Jesus and to walk in him. But I say this to remind us that the blessings of Psalm 127 are not just uh, for biological children. It is for the covenant children in the church. Remember, this is a, a, a uh, psalm which is given to all of Israel. As we look and apply it to us today, we see it as one that is given to the work of evangelism and discipleship inside the body of Christ. See, Psalm 127 reminds us of the basic pattern of the Christian life. People are born again. They're made new to the hope of the gospel. They're raised up as, in Christ, as disciples of Christ, and then they're sent out into the world and on mission. You know, they're one to Christ. They're built up in Christ. They're sent out in Christ. Win, build, send. One in Christ, built in Christ, sent out in the world. Second Timothy 2, 1 through 2 is a good example of this. The Apostle Paul speaks to his apprentice Timothy and knows what he calls him. He calls him his, his child. He says, you then, my child... He says, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, what is he doing? He's building, training, equipping. He says, what you've received there, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He says, go, I send you. Go tell others. Go win them. Go build them. Send them. That's a blessing that we see as people who learn who Jesus is, and then they take on his character, and they take on his mission. The church is the family of God. It is his family. And so the Lord is blessed as his church continues to grow. The Lord is blessed as local churches win people to Christ, as they become his children by adoption. If you look at verse 3 again, 
Psalm 127, verse 3, it says, Children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. How much more of a reward is it to see people who are far from God, far from, um, um, far from Christ, and they find hope in their lives. They find forgiveness of sins. They find connection inside the body of Christ, and they find new life in the Holy Spirit of God. And, and that's what God is doing. Look at verses 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. How much more true is it if God, that God is glorified with many uh, believers being trained up in their faith and sent out as disciples in Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought of yourself as one of those arrows of Psalm 127? Well, that's, that's what you are. You know, we don't come here to be entertained. We don't come here asking. Um, we, do come, we don't come here coming to be entertained. But we come here asking God to form us and to shape us. We don't come here just expecting a social time or to feel good. I mean, church and, and church times, those are times of spiritual formation. It's like the bread and the butter of the church to see believers put on the mind of Christ to take up his character, to understand his mission, whether it's our, our care groups or our Sunday school classes, our youth ministries, those are there to help us to become like Christ. That's the importance of them. Churches that lose their mission die. You know, they, they forget that they're here for reproduction. Families that forget that they're reproducing, they die off. Any nation that stops having children will eventually disappear. And there are whole tribes of people that just decide to stop having children. They've disappeared. In the church, we need to remember that our mission is discipleship. That's the reproduction we're called to. To make disciples. And if you look back at verse 5, and just as a father shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates, how much more is Christ glorified as his people go out into the world as they demonstrate his love, as they show his character, as they serve their neighbors and the things that they do. Let me tell you, the Lord is not ashamed of his church on mission. He is not ashamed of the ministry of the gospel. He is not ashamed of the work of evangelism. He is not, ash- he is not ashamed of the arm of love of his people. And as, as the church is salt and light into our dark world, God delights in it. The very, the very foundation of this great work, then, is in Jesus Christ. You can think about how Jesus builds his kingdom. He builds it person by person. Usually we build things by gaining new things, but he built by giving first, by dying. He built it in his meekness. He saw us in our sin. He gave himself on a cross as an atonement for our sin, and so he builds his church by raising a people, by raising them from death, the death of sin, and he brings them into the life of his own resurrection, his own resurrection life. And so the question for you is, are you part of that kingdom? Do you have a place in Jesus Christ? If you haven't believed him, would you believe him today? Ask him to forgive your sins. I mean, he will do that. And as you receive the forgiveness of sins, as you receive the new life that he gives you, you will become one of his arrows for good for the lost and the hurting people of a dying world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us new life. New life, it does come from you. We never would have believed, God, if you wouldn't have brought that new life into our hearts and minds. God, we know that you have a mission for us. And God, our, um, we know that sin sometimes keeps us from that. But Father, Christ restores us. 
Christ gives grace. Christ has worked even when we slept. Christ worked even when we were enemies and reconciled us to you. So, that, Father, we could be useful for your purposes. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us be faithful to share your good news, your word with others, with our, within our family, of course, but also within our community, that many would know the good news of forgiven sins and that many would have life, God, that you would build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask you, God, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll stand together. You'll see our closing hymn on the screen.